Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Hello, good morning. I'm excited to continue on in the book of John. This is our second week looking at this book. John is a biography, one of four biographies of Jesus. I am reading John chapter 1, 19 to 29. And I don't know if we ever mentioned this, but the, the uh, scripture reading, we, we read from the ESV. That's what you're seeing up on the screen. Okay, so John 1, 19 to 29. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They had asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, good morning. A few announcements before we get rolling here. We're going to paint the foyer next Sunday after worship. So if you you like the paint or you like to tape or just want to hang out and talk, hang out with us. That's next Sunday after service. Um, Bible study this Wednesday is on. We're in the covenants. We're looking at the covenant with David this Wednesday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We love you and we come to you with broken and contrite hearts. Lord, help us to see the paradox in the gospel that to be brought high is to be made low. To have victory is to repent. To find life is to pick up our cross. Lord, we We love you, and today as we look at John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus Christ as the Lamb, help us to see, to see our own sin, to see what the Lamb of God has done for us as your people, and to worship. We pray this in your name. Amen. So like Evan said, this is week number two. We're in the the book of John. And last week, we we looked at where John started. John started way back. Matthew, Luke, Mark, 
They go back and they trace the genealogy of, of Jesus back into the Old Testament. Mark goes into the prophets. Matthew takes them back to Abraham. And then Luke goes all the way to the, to the son of Adam. But we saw that, J- that John actually starts even further back. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we looked at how John, his writing is maybe a little different than, than let's say, a Matthew. A Matthew uses many Old Testament texts and quotes. And, and he, Matthew is like a, a painter. He's just putting a lot of stuff up there on the canvas. But we looked at John, and in John, I, I had that Rembrandt painting, and it, we have the quote. Actually, we'll read the quote. John is like a Rembrandt. John takes fewer instances of Christ and just highlights them. And he highlights them throughout the entire Gospel. So let's uh, look at that quote. Is it up there? Nope, the first slide. There we go. All right. He says, if, for Luke, if Luke, for example, is the master of death, quick, fleeting illusion, John is a master of the carefully framed luminous image that shines brilliantly against a dark canvas and lingers in the imagination. John's technique is like that of Rembrandt's portraits. He prefers to focus on singular, artistically selected instances that repay sustained meditation. So we're going to look at one of those things today that John highlights throughout his entire gospel. In fact, the more I'm reading John and just immersed in it and reading commentaries, I'm seeing that this gospel is pointing to one thing. And not that the others aren't pointing to this thing either, but John does it in that type of way. So I would ask you this morning, what do you think about when you think about the cross? To put it another way, how how central is the cross to your day-to-day boots on the ground, like get my hands dirty faith? You're a Christian. Do you think about the cross? Do you meditate on the cross? Do you look at the riches of what is happening on the cross? Does it bring you to worship? The narrative of John moves relentlessly towards the cross. In fact, John says it Like this, he calls it Jesus' hour. In fact, and I'll just read you a few scriptures. To his mother, we're going to look at that next week at at the wedding. His mother, they run out of wine and, and she's like, do something, Jesus. And he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. As the narrative progresses, he's teaching in the temple And they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. As the story progresses, he's again in the temple, and it says no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. As we approach Passover in the book of John, Jesus says, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And then he goes on to say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As the story progresses in John, he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then the night that he was betrayed in the upper room, at the Passover meal, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. And I want to submit to you that the Gospel of John is relentlessly moving towards this thing that John calls Jesus' hour, which is the cross. The whole storyline of Scripture, in fact, is moving towards Jesus' hour. Couldn't it be another way? Couldn't God have done this differently? And we'll, we'll look at that today. All right, let's look at in John 1, 6 to 8. This is the first mention of John, which can be a little confusing because you're reading the book of John and then all of a sudden there's a pivot in verse 6 where we're now talking about another John and it can be confusing. But John 1, 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist comes, 400 years of silence. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel. 400 years, and then all of a sudden you've got this man, John the Baptist. He's coming out of the wilderness. He's eating honey and wild locusts. He's kind of in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, he, he's, he's before kings. It's, it, it, at some point, we'll see that. And he was not the light. The Bible makes it very clear. He came, John came to bear witness about the light. As the story progresses, John 1, 19 to 22. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who, who are you? They want to know, this guy, he's baptizing people, he's making disciples, he's got a following. Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? If you know anything about how the Old Testament ends, the Old Testament ends with this promise that, that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. So they're thinking, hey, are you Elijah is that who you are? Why are you doing this? You're baptizing people. You're gaining a following. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Now the prophet, this reaches all the way back to Deuteronomy where, where it said, Moses, they're going to raise someone up like you, a prophet. So the Jews would have been looking like, hey, there's a prophet to come. Are you the prophet, John? No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So let's look just a few things that John says about himself. He says, number one, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. 
I'm not Elijah, which is confusing because Jesus will attest in the Gospels that he was the Elijah to come. That's, that's another story. But he's not Elijah. He can say that. I'm not Elijah, I'm John. And I'm not the prophet that Moses spoke of. Actually, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest man born of a woman. The greatest man who, who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, calls John the Baptist the greatest. And he shows up, and what does he say about himself? I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. One of the things that has been and can be and will be and I believe will continue to be a temptation for me as a pastor is to have all the answers. And especially being a new pastor, you know, you, you, you want to do well and when someone has an, an answer about scripture or you're, you're talking to someone and they're hurting, you want to know what to say. You want to say the right words. You want to come in and say, yeah, I, I can do this. And you can't. I can't. I don't have all the answers. In fact, if you ever notice, if, if you ask me a question and I don't know it, I might get a little twinkle in my eye by saying, I, I don't know, because it's so freeing. Because I have to tell myself and you have to tell yourself, you would never say that you're the Christ, but we can kind of live our life as if we need to be perfect and have everything together. And we'd all do good to say, we are not the Christ. We're Christians, and we point to the Christ. He is the light, not us. He is the light. In the last 10 years as a husband and a father, me and Amy have been in many situations where, and, and I know you have too, you're sitting at the table and you're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't have the answer. And you know, those situations used to really freak me out as a man and that, you know, to lead, I want to be a, a husband who leads his wife and his kids and to, to get to those points, you're sitting around the kitchen table and, and you don't know how you're going to get through the mess that you're in. But you say, he does. Let's pray. Because I don't know what to do. Let's pray. I'm not the Christ. He is. And that's incredibly freeing. And my hope for this church is that we don't go out trying to build a brand and, and, and build like a, a vintage faith brand that we can be known, that we are all about. He is the Christ. We come here and we worship the Christ. I don't have a lot for you. I'm not going to change the world, but I can do one thing. He is the Christ. Here he is. He's there. See him in the word. He's, he's there. He is the Christ. You are not. I am not. At the very end of chapter 39 in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is talking with King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had just allowed Babylon to come in and he kind of just 
showed him everything he had. Like, hey, here's all our riches. Here's, here's the, the kingdom here. Take a look. And it ends up backfiring on King Hezekiah. And Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah. And he says, because you did this, the days are coming when Babylon is going to come in and they're going to take everything that you have. Your sons are going to be eunuchs in the king's court. If you know anything about eunuchs, it's not something you want for your son. But after that, he gives this message of comfort, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. That word Lord there is Yahweh. Whenever you see in, in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that is the personal name of God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. When you see lowercase, it's going to mean Adonai. It's a title. But in this case, Isaiah says, Make, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you're going to see this in the prophets. I don't know how often you read the prophets, but if you're reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, you're going to see this tension in the prophets where it's judgment, judgment, wrath, comfort. It's all over the prophets. And here we have it. Right after Isaiah just tells Hezekiah, hey, your, your sons are going to be eunuchs in a land that is not their own. We have this scripture of comfort. Prepare the way for the Lord, for Yahweh. John, in verse 23, quotes this. They're asking him, John, who are you? We need to give an account. We need to tell the people that sent us. We need to tell them who you are. You're gaining all these followers. You're having all this success. Who in the world are you, John? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Yahweh as the prophet Isaiah said. John is saying, I'm not preparing the way for a prophet. I'm not preparing the way for a teacher. I'm not preparing the way for a great man. I am preparing the way for Yahweh to come to his people. Yahweh, who created the world by speaking it into existence. Yahweh, who parted the Red Sea to, 
free his people out of slavery. Yahweh who gave his people manna from heaven. Yahweh who nobody could see his glory and live. And John is saying, I am the voice and I am announcing the coming of Yahweh to his people. This is why, by the way, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived. He has the greatest job ever. If you think about all the prophets in the Old Testament, they were announcing the coming of the Messiah. But John got to actually see the Messiah come. He was announcing the coming of the Messiah. He saw the Messiah come and he baptized the Messiah. John is saying, I am preparing the way of Yahweh. So the narrative continues. John 1, 24 to 28, they had seen, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So again, John, John's whole ministry is to say, it's, it's not about me. There's one among you right now. You, you don't even know it. He's among you. He's eating with you. He's at the temple with you. He's among you. And I'm not, even un, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. This is the promised one from old. If you think back to our Genesis series, one of the main themes that we looked at in Genesis was there's one coming to roll back this curse. And again, remember, Lamech thought maybe it's Noah, but it wasn't Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and, and none of them could roll back the curse of sin. And John is saying here, Yahweh is coming. God himself will be the one to do it. He's among you. He's among you right now. And if we think back to Genesis, and if you can remember back to to the sermon that we did on Abraham, Abraham was given a promise that the world would be blessed through him, that he would have this offspring, this seed. And he, him and Sarah weren't having any kids. They decided to take it into their own hands. That didn't go well. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And God confirmed. He said, you will have a son. And it will be from Sarah. And finally, Isaac is born, and they're rejoicing. And then God says, sacrifice him. Take him up that mountain. Abraham puts the wood on his shoulders. He's carrying his own wood for his own sacrifice. Genesis 22, 7 to 8. So Isaac says to Abraham, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide 
for himself, the lamb, for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And you know the story at the last minute, Abraham was about to faithfully carry this out. And God speaks and says, stop, don't do it. And there's a ram over there in the thicket. God provided a ram. And we know that the story of lamb, it starts in in Genesis and then we have Exodus, the Passover, where the blood of the lamb saved God's people from the destroyer. And then all throughout the sacrificial system, we have this idea of a lamb, unblemished lamb in Leviticus 4.32, if you're taking notes. A lamb is a sin offering, and it can't be a, a, a lamb with defects. It has to be a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb. And then as the biblical story unfolds, we have Isaiah who's talking about the Messiah to come, and he describes the Messiah as a lamb being led to the slaughter. This is one of those themes that begins in Genesis and just builds. In fact, the Apostle John in Revelation uses the word lamb of God, I think it's 30 plus times. You can can look that up on your own to check me on that. But the lamb of God, of God. So back to John. The next day, John sees Jesus coming towards him. And what are his first words? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are John's first words when he sees Jesus. He's not, hey, the Messiah is here. The promised one is here. He looks at Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was planned before the foundations of the world that the Word becoming flesh would be slaughtered as a lamb for your sin and my sin and the sin of God's people. Before the foundations of the world, this was planned. This isn't plan B. This isn't, oh, Adam and Eve sinned, now what? This was planned before the foundations of the world. In fact, Jonathan Edwards says this of the cross. The creation of the world seems to be especially made for this end that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence, goodness of his nature, and to whom he might open and pour forth all the immense fountain of love and grace that was in his heart. Jonathan Edwards is saying, speculating, but I think he's on to something here, that the entire creation of the world as we know it was made so the Son of God could die for his people. The cross is the greatest act of love in the history of the world. And I hope 
you as Christians and me as, as a Christian, that we can think upon that and meditate on the cross and think in worship. I think for many of us, we can't fathom that God actually loves us enough that he moves towards us into our sin, into our ugliest parts of ourselves, into our, the places where we think he's going to recoil because he knows that about us. Like, okay, yeah, things are good with, with me and Jesus, but I got this one thing. It's deep, dark in my heart. I, I don't want him to know about that. We think God recoils from that, and I tell you, he moves into that. And if you think that I'm making it up, all you have to do is look at the cross. Ephesians 2, 4-7 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trans- trespasses, so dead in our tra- trespasses, enemies towards him, we hated him. The Bible says we were enemies. We hated God. Even then, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his own heart. One place. And you might be surprised to hear what he says about his own heart. Jesus doesn't say, my heart is full of judgment and justice. He says, my heart is gentle and lowly, humble. In fact, when you go into the Old Testament, the number one attribute of God is he is a God of mercy. This doesn't mean he's not a God of judgment. It doesn't negate that. But God's heart beats for his people. He is a God of mercy, and the cross is the evidence of that. Why did the promised child that, that we looked at in Genesis, the promised one, the one who will bring us relief, why did he need to be a lamb? Why, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why couldn't God just snap his fingers and everything be done? Al Mohler says this about the curse. The curse is God's righteous judgment of sin, and the effect of the curse is death. The curse has fallen upon all human beings, first because of Adam's sin and then because of our own. Where is the curse found? Everywhere we look, we see the curse and its malignant effects. How far does it extend? to every atom and molecule of creation. From coast to coast, shore to shore, sky to sky, and every square inch of the planet, that's how far the curse is found. 
No sinful man could have rolled back the curse. No political leader can lead us into utopia. The world is under a curse. And only the sinless Son of God incarnate word became flesh who dwelled among us, who became sin for us so we might become righteous. Only that can roll it back and reverse it. In fact, Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ redeemed us from the curse and became a curse. 2 Corinthians says it like this, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are currently multiple strands of Christianity that are flat out denying the cross, but ascribing to everything else. And and when I say denying the cross, they're not actually denying it. They're just denying that the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world on the cross. You're not going to hear the word sin. You're not going to hear the word judgment. You certainly won't hear the word sacrifice. Not much obedience and future hope. Why are you always thinking about the future? It should be about now. And that's progressive Christianity. And I would say the very thing that they're trying to accomplish, which is to to just push down the offense of the cross. Like, this is just too much here. They would call it divine child abuse. Why would God do that? The very thing that they're trying to suppress is the very thing that gives us power. It's the very thing that allows us to worship. Like Edward said, the the creation of the world was for this end. So the Lamb of God could die for the people of God. Richard Niebuhr was a theologian in the mid-1900s and He was looking around and seeing a lot of the churches getting kind of sucked into these social justice movements, which is big today, and it was big in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And they were getting sucked into all these things that were were off of the main thing, which was the cross. And he says this about that type of Christianity, that it's a God without wrath that brought men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. The cross is the fuel for the Christian life. It's the fuel for worship. If we don't know what we've been saved from, how do we experience joy in where we now are. If we don't know where we came from, what Christ did for us, how do we worship this Christ? The cross is folly to the world. It's an offense to the world. The world doesn't want to hear about the cross because the pride of humanity, it, it, it exposes it all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is the power of God. The cross is where the power is. The Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Do you know what kind of Savior you need? You don't need a motivator. There's enough of those in this world. You don't need a mystic. You need the Lamb of God to take away your sin. 2,000 years ago, another father and son were walking up a mountain together. They were walking up Calvary. And just like Isaac, the son had the cross on his shoulder. He was carrying his own wood for his own sacrifice. But this time, nobody said stop. The wrath of God's justice was poured out on Christ. God did did indeed provide the lamb. Jesus Christ is that lamb. Will you with me take a minute before we take communion and just behold the lamb of God? Take a minute to think, what does the cross mean to you? What did Christ save you from? Let's get our hearts right. hour that Jesus was referring to had finally come. It was Passover. They were in the upper room and Jesus was about to to flip this institutional Passover meal on, on its head and reclaim it and say, this is about me. This was all pointing to me. Scriptures say, and when the hour came, the hour is here, Jesus, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He took the bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. Let's eat together. After the meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink.
Heavenly Father, let us see as your children the path to victory, the path to glory. Even in our own faith is to be brought low. Give us contrite and broken hearts over our own sin and fill us with joy and grace over the pardon of our sin. Lord, we thank you that you have provided the lamb. We thank you that we do not have to be the Christ. Help us to rest in that and help us to worship knowing that you have provided the lamb in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.